The rest of you, I invite you to turn your Bibles to James. Uh, James chapter 3. We'll finish out James chapter 3 this morning. As you turn there, I want to do two things. One is I want to let you know now that the, at the end of our time this morning, we're going to observe the Lord's Supper together. And so I want you to go ahead and begin preparing your heart as you hear from God's Word. I don't like... Uh, I, <laughs> I always find it sort of interesting, right, when we uh, come to that time and we're like, okay, everybody, prepare your hearts. In 30 seconds, we're going to pass the Lord's Supper to you. It's like, okay, how prepared can I be in 30 seconds? Uh, So I want you to know that going into it. Uh, The other thing I want to do, actually, I have two more things I want to do. Armando's back from California, looking good, looking svelte, looking like a Marine. Good to see you, brother. You doing all right? Yes, sir. That's good. That's good. Continue to pray for him and his family. Um, And here's the other thing I wanted to do for you. Uh, I wanted us to take a minute and remind ourselves of where we've been and why we're going where we're going uh, in our text. Um, We spent the year 2015 going through God's word, talking about the issue of identity. Uh, And what we pleaded with you from God's word to understand is that your identity as a Christian is not rooted and grounded in where you worship on Sunday mornings. It's not rooted and grounded in how many verses of the Bible that you have memorized. It's not rooted and grounded on how nice your family looks on the outside, right? Or how great your Instagram page looks or anything like that. Your identity is rooted and grounded in Jesus Christ. Um, And as a follower of Jesus, that is what first and foremost you ought to find your identity in. So we spent an entire year doing that, right? We looked at the book of Ruth. We looked at Habakkuk. So uh, when your identity is rooted and grounded in Jesus, and then all of a sudden uh, the world is uh, kind of mean and the rug gets jerked out from under you. Anybody ever been there? Okay, there's a couple of you that have. The rest of you are living that skating through life on Instagram sort of a life. Um, But when the rug gets jerked out from underneath you, how does the identity being rooted and grounded in Jesus sustain you in the midst of that? So that's what we did in 2015. Only after you understand your identity in Jesus do we begin to talk about, all right, now what? Right? In in fact, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he spends three chapters in the introduction of the letter saying, here's who you are in Jesus, here's who you are in Jesus, here's who you are in Jesus, and now here's how we love our church family. Here's how we honor our spouse. Here's how we love and honor our parents. Here's how we parent our children only after understanding that and so uh in 2015 who you are in jesus 2016 now how do we live out that reality and we started with a reminder in the book of revelation we did seven letters to the seven churches reminding us that if we forget that if we lose sight of our identity being found in jesus here's some pitfalls that have uh historically uh tripped up christians in the past and then landed in the book of James. And uh, I naively thought we would skip right on through James pretty quickly, and we have not. We have slowed our roll, and we are taking our time walking through here and seeing um, what James has to say to us. And just very quickly, walking through the book of James, uh, we started our time together talking about the fact that trials and temptations will come. It's not a question if they will come. They will come. Trials and temptations come and they test our faith. And it's through that testing of our faith that our faith deepens. We talked about the importance of hearing and doing the word. I'm going to continue to plead with you week after week after week after week. 
This is not a club that you join. This is not a club, right? The church does not primarily exist for your benefit. This is a gathering of people who have all said, I desire to follow Jesus with my life. And coming together under the scriptures, under their authority to do what the church has been called to do. And so James tells us, listen, don't just listen, but do what you have heard. We talked about the uh, sin of partiality and how there is a tendency that, um, just to prove to you that I like to read and I am a nerd, uh, the homogeneous unit principle says like attracts like. And so we tend to spend time with people that we like. And we also sinfully tend to spend time with people, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, uh, who we can get something from, right? Uh, I'm going to spend time with so-and-so. Why? I don't really like them, but I can get something from them. And James just tells us this is sinful. And it's not just an out there problem, but it's an in the church problem as well. Then we looked at the fact that uh, James, again, just being really blunt, says, listen, if, if you have faith and there are no works that give evidence to that faith, then you don't actually have faith. Your faith is dead. And I, I love that about James. He doesn't mince words, right? As pastors, we have, or I have a tendency to want to soft, soften the blow a little bit. I, I, I know that shocks some of you because you know what I want to say and what I actually say, right? Um, but, but no, I, I, you want to soften it a little bit and say, there, there, it's okay, you're trying. James says, listen, I love you enough to tell you that if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, but you're not actually following him, then you're not a follower of Jesus. This is pretty obvious in a vacuum, but we rarely ever go to somebody and say, brother, I love you. I care about you. You claim to be a Christian and a follower of Jesus. But brother, I see no fruit and I'm not here to judge you, but I care enough about you to just ask, what's going on? And then last week, we spent a few moments together considering the tongue and the power of the tongue to encourage and the power of the tongue to destroy and the fact that apart from God, the tongue is untamable. It's impossible for us to tame. And so we challenged one another uh, in the context of the service to either confess and repent to one another where we have... uh, used our tongue, our words to tear down, to bite, um, to gossip, to discourage. And we also encourage one another to take a few moments to encourage one another, right? I, that was a wonderful time together. I don't know about you guys, but I was really blessed by just being able to share words of encouragement, also hear some words of encouragement. And this is not an, uh, a, a good idea This is a command. We're to use the tongue to edify and encourage the saints. Okay. So now we arrive at James chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. If you would stand in the honor of the reading of God's word, we'll read these verses together. James chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. James continues his letter. He says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. 
This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, just even in these brief few moments together, the reminder that our identity is not found in the neighborhood in which we live, the job that we hold, the size of our bank account, who our friends are or are not, what church we attend. God, our identity is found in Christ. And Father, uh, only in light of that do we begin to, to live and to move and to serve and and Lord, I confess, uh, I don't think I'm unique in this, but God, I fail in my service all the time. Uh, but I thank you, Lord, that you receive me. Uh, you receive my repentance, God. You uh, convict me of sin and draw me back into yourself. And Father, I pray that for those who are here this morning, God, that as we spend these next few moments looking into your word, that God, you would be pleased to speak to the hearts of your people. God, that... Um, where there is sin, we would be convicted. We would confess and repent of it. God, where there are those maybe in this room this morning who do not know Christ, that they might hear the good news of the gospel and receive it. Father, we pray that you would do these things, um, certainly not for Scott McDowell's sake, certainly not for City View Church's sake, but God, that you might be glorified. God, we pray that your kingdom would advance and that we would get to be a part of that advancement. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. You can have a seat. Now, James starts our passage off with a great question, right? He starts it off with this question, who is wise and understanding? Now, how many of you all know that it's important to define your terms? It's important to define terminology and to know what you mean. In fact, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this importance, right? That a boot in England is the trunk of our car. Right? And so for you to say that you have two boots on your feet in England does not make any sense because who wears two trunks on their feet? Um, and so when you think about this idea of wisdom and understanding, uh, it's important that we understand the way that the, the world in general would define this and the way that the scriptures define this. Now, there was a study done recently of the cultural differences in the definition and understanding of wisdom, right? Um, they specifically targeted Eastern cultures, so uh, primarily like Asia, that area over there, and uh, Western cultures. And they said, all right, how do these different cultures define and understand wisdom? And in uh, the Eastern cultures, it was much more about, uh, it was much more about age. It was much more about um, the person, Whereas in Western culture, it was more about degrees, facts, knowledge, people that would kill it on jeopardy, all right? And that was the differences in understanding culturally. Generationally, we understand wisdom differently as well, right? Um, the, an older generation is going to look for certain character traits, attributes, um, things, skills, that they would perceive as wise or belonging to those who are wise. Whereas a younger generation would say, listen, if you don't know how to, whatever it was Chris was talking about, about bouncing satellites and IP addresses into China and back and all this stuff, 
that generation, a younger generation is going to say, well, you can't be wise if you don't know how to do all of these things. You, you might know some things, but certainly you're not as wise as I am because look at all the stuff that I can do. So generationally, there's differences in understanding of wisdom experientially, right? How many of you have ever gone to somebody that you thought was wise and only to sit down with them and about halfway through the conversation go, they're not really as wise as I thought they were. Okay, you guys have never had that experience. All right, y'all are, y'all are way too pious. I have, I have sat down at a cup of coffee thinking, okay, I need to get some wisdom on a decision. What do you think about this, brother? And about three sentences in, I'm going, okay, well, I'll just sit and listen, and I'll do the opposite of what this brother is telling me because clearly not very wise. And so there are differences in how we understand wisdom culturally, generationally, experientially. Now, do these all lead to immediate and catastrophic failure? Can you get wise counsel from somebody who is not a believer and have it work out well for you? Yeah, yeah, you can. Anybody ever receive counsel on how to do their taxes? Yeah, you don't have to be a believer to know how the IRS works. You've got to be something else entirely, right? I don't know what you've got to be, but, but you can receive wisdom from outside sources that is beneficial, that is true. It does not lead to immediate and catastrophic danger. But receiving wisdom from culture as your primary means of receiving of wisdom is like a monkey trap. You guys know the monkey trap? You know how the monkey trap works? Basically, thank you. Was that Maya? All right, Maya, I'm going to tell you how a monkey trap works. Where are you at? There you are. I can see you. Okay, monkey trap. It's a jar. It's got food that the monkey wants in it, right? He can put his hand in, but if he grabs hold of what it is he wants, if there's a cookie in there and he grabs hold of the cookie, he can't pull his hand out. Now, here's the crazy thing, right? If he let go of the cookie, he can pull his hand right back out. But he can't. He wants the cookie so bad. And what will happen is the people who are trapping the monkeys will just walk right up to him, bop him on the head, pull the monkey off, and then do whatever they do with monkeys. I don't know. This is, this is the way wisdom tends to work, right? The more we cling to worldly wisdom, the more we refuse to allow that to, to leave us, the more we refuse to just let go of that, the more trapped we become. And this may sound somewhat silly, but let me assure you that this is not silly. In Proverbs 16, verse 25, as John said, the book of Proverbs, like we could, I could have cross-referenced every single statement that I make with a verse from Proverbs, right? But in Proverbs 16, verse 25, we read these words. There's a way that seems right to a man. Okay, there's wisdom that makes sense on the surface and even works to a certain degree. But its end is the way to death. Now, does that sound like a laughing matter, death? Does that sound like where we receive wisdom and counsel from is of little consequence? No. And the scary thing is, is that phrase seems right to a man. We can receive counsel from people that on the surface makes a lot of sense. And it seems right. 
but it ultimately leads to death. So then how then do the scriptures define wisdom? I just want to share with you just a, a, one lengthier passage and, and, and we'll, we'll move on. Proverbs 8, verses 22 to 36. The Lord possessed me. Speaking of wisdom, me is wisdom. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first, before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields or, the, or the, uh, the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep. When he made firm the skies above. When he established the fountains of the deep. When he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command. When he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was beside him. Like a master workman, I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him, always rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. Listen to this. And now, sons, listen to me. Listen to wisdom. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself, and all who hate me love death. Do you see that the scriptures are saying that this is a life and death issue? We tend to think of this as a, Okay, so he's going to talk to us about talking to Christians to get advice from Christians before we get advice from other people. Well, the scripture said there's a lot more at stake than just who you buy a cup of coffee with. Jeremiah 9, verse 23 and 24. This is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this that he understands and knows me. If you want to be wise, if you hear this message and think, okay, I don't want death, I want life, I don't want um, the world's wisdom, I want godly wisdom, the scriptures tell us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, Now, I want to be really careful here. Because we hear that phrase, the fear of the Lord, and you're prone to do one of two things. You're either prone to think of it as terrifying fear of the Lord, or you're prone to say, oh, it just means that God is really big. It is not an either or, it is a both and, right? I've told you all that when you um, consider, right, have you ever been, let me just say this way, I went to the Philippines a long, long time ago, and in the middle of the bush, there isn't a lot of ambient light. And so when you look up into the sky at night, what you see is an unbelievable number of stars. I mean, truly, like, it's just, it shatters my mind. I just, I just don't understand how there can be that many stars, and I don't see them the majority of the time. And in that moment, what it was impressed upon me is how incredibly grand God is. 
right? How, like truly majestic or in the original intent of the word, awesome God is, right? You, we ought to be filled with awe when we see the works of his hands, right? Did you hear the verbiage used in Proverbs 8 when he formed the mountains, right? Like he formed them like my child forms a mountain out of Plato. God forms the mountains. And even greater than that, Josie and I were reading in the Jesus Storybook Bible this week, and we started the beginning again, and we're reading about how God creates the earth, and he speaks the world into existence. Speaks it into existence. Now, some of y'all have a clapper, and you think that you got the stuff, right? Because you clap your hands and the lights come on. God spoke and light. God spoke and mountains. God spoke and the world is filled with animals and the creation. This is our God. And if you truly want to be wise, then you fear him in all that that means, right? You are afraid of his judgment. You are afraid of his power because it's truly mind-boggling to stand before such power and awesomeness. And at the same time, the fear of the Lord drives up within us humility and love and joy because that same God deigned to come to earth to die on a cross for you. And this is the beginning of wisdom. We could go on and on. We could do a 30-week sermon series on wisdom and the pursuit of wisdom, but for our purposes this morning, we won't try to do a 30-week sermon series. I got amens on that one. (laughs) The important thing for us to note here is this. There are drastic differences and that apart from God's word, there is no standard or universal understanding of wisdom or its source. So let's delve just a little bit deeper into these distinctions as described by James by looking at earthly wisdom contrasted with eternal wisdom. Now notice earthly wisdom is demonstrated through self-centered actions. And he lists several of them here in our passage this morning. He begins with bitter jealousy. So earthly wisdom begins to well up within us in the form of bitter jealousy. I love that he sandwiches those two words together, right? It's not just jealousy, it's bitter jealousy. Do you ever find yourself um, envious of others and that envy begins to develop into a dislike for them? Your thoughts may form into this pattern. Why them? Why not me? Do you you find those kinds of thoughts just kind of consistently bubbling up in your mind? You might not articulate them. You might not say them out loud. They might not last really long. But do you find that those questions bubble up in your mind frequently? And listen, I know that I yell about social media a lot. I understand that. But this is one way where that is constantly thrown in front of you. Constantly. You want to have children, and what you see on Instagram is everybody having babies. And you think, why are they having babies and I can't? Or everybody's getting married. It's spring, summer. You know, everybody's getting married. I want to be married. Why, why, why can't I be married? And why, why are they getting married and I, I'm not getting married? Is something wrong with me? I'm, I'm a better person than that person is. Do you see how that trajectory just kind of builds and develops? 
How can that person have that job? How can they have that house? How can they? And that little seed of jealousy begins to develop into bitterness. And what can happen, as James describes the next, is that that develops into a selfish ambition. So I know how I can get that. So I'm going to get it. I know, I, I know how to have that job, how to have that house. I, I know that if I just do these things, that I can gain and accumulate wisdom, knowledge, the acclaim of others. I, I can have all of these things that I see that this person has that I want to have. We become like that monkey in the trap, right? We so desperately want whatever that thing is, right? And for everybody in the room, there is that thing, right? And if you don't know what that thing is and you're married, ask your spouse. If you don't know what that thing is and you're not married, ask your best friend, ask your family. They can tell you what that thing is. And we can cling so tightly to that that everything else around us can be chaos. And as long as we're clinging tight to that thing, we are unaware of the fact that, that our world might literally be crumbling all around us. We, uh, Josie and I, Jesse tolerates it. Josie and I love to watch American Ninja Warrior together. Uh, it is awesome. I got an amen from a teenager. I think that's a bonus point right there. So if you're keeping score at home, I don't know how you do that. So anyway, but we love to watch American Ninja Warrior. And Josie's hilarious because um, she likes to mimic what they're doing on the television. So they're like, they're swinging. So she's swinging like through the living room. Like she's not swinging from anything. She's just pretending to. We were watching it last night. And um, I think the reason that Jesse tolerates it is when they do the backstory, right? She could care less if they fall in the water. She just wants to know the backstory. And then she's like over in the corner, like dabbing at her eyes, like when the guy who the backstory they just heard, and it's so sweet. And then he falls on the first obstacle where I'm like, hey, got cocky. Um, <laughs> that tell you that mercy is not typically really high for me? So we were watching this last night, right? And um, there was a, a guy that they were interviewing. And this guy had built up this incredibly successful company. And uh, he was doing well. The company was doing well. It was thriving. But he was working like 80, 90, 100 hours a week to get this thing off the ground. And what was once a season became a lifestyle. That lifestyle persisted to the point that his wife finally came to him and said, Sweetheart, I'm done. I'm, I'm already a single parent. I might as well make it official. I'm out. And in that moment, he realized that he had, in his selfish ambition, he had grabbed onto success in the eyes of the world and refused to let go, regardless of what that meant for his family or his children or his wife. And what's beautiful is that he began to tell how that was a moment in his life that completely changed his life, and he let go of all of that other stuff. And he said, you know what? I only have one family. These are my children to raise. And if that means that this business someday crumbles, then that means this business someday crumbles. And that was, I guess, several years ago, and there he was swinging from the trapeze or whatever he was doing on American Ninja Warrior with his family cheering in the background. James described these selfish ambitions in chapter 2. He described those who receive guests in accordance with their wealth, power, and influence, who said, you know, listen, I'm so glad you're here at church today. 
let me sit beside you, let me take you to lunch. And the only reason that they're doing those things is because, hey, uh, you're a realtor and I'm trying to buy a house. Or you own such and such company, or you're in HR and I need a job. James says this is sinful. It should not be the case. So then what happens is you have this jealousy that builds into bitterness, producing within us this selfish ambition, this drive to get it no matter what it takes. And that produces boastfulness. Look what I did. Look how awesome I am. Look what I have built. Look at the size of this and the do you know people that just want to be heard all the time? We, we talked last week about um, the, the, what it would be like to be in a conversation with somebody and that you were listening so intently for evidences of God's grace that you would call a timeout in the middle of the conversation and say, do you see God at work in your life right here? And yet there are other people that you sit at a table with and as, they're, as you're talking, you can see in their brain that they're already grinding, right? They're already just... I can't wait to interject my comment, my story, my thing. They're not interested in a conversation with you. They just want to say all this cool stuff that they know, these experiences that they've had, this wisdom that they have to impart. Beware of such people. And what tends to happen out of all of this is they become, and I love this phrase that James is a master at turning a phrase, right? Um, every now and again, like as I'm reading through the scriptures in James, like I just get hung up. Mercy is greater than judgment. Like I just, I got hung up on that phrase and just chewed on that for so long. They uh, become, those who pursue earthly wisdom become false to the truth. False to the truth. This is moral relativism at its finest. It's a refusal to confess and admit the truth regardless of how plain it is in front of you. We see this all of the time, right? When it comes to, for example, what God's word says about how you ought to live. God's word is full of admonitions, commands about how you and I are to live. Now listen, this is important. It is not a list of do's and don'ts to earn his approval, all right? These are not classroom rules, but this is, I designed the earth. I designed everything in it. I knit your body together. I know how this works best. I know how to make marriage work best. I know how to make life full and abundant and joyful. God knows these things because he's the creator and the designer of these things. And yet, and yet, we'll go talk to Dr. Phil. So you have these two choices in front of you, right? God Almighty, creator of the heavens and the earth, who knit you together. You are beautifully and wonderfully and fearfully made, right? You're all these things, and he's the one who did that. You can go to him for advice, or you can go to a middle-aged guy with a talk show. And we go to the middle-aged guy with a talk show. Church, we have the truth before us. This is the truth. And what happens is, like, we put this back in our car, we don't pull it out again until next Sunday. 
Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. I would encourage you to read out throughout the rest of that passage, 1 Corinthians 1. Because Paul makes this really compelling case that what is wise in accordance with God's word is going to seem foolish to the world. Then notice with me that earthly wisdom is demonic in its origins. I, I find this fascinating, right? We would have a tendency to say it's not a good idea. Don't seek earthly wisdom because it's not a good idea. James very quickly moves from it's earthly to that fact that it's unspiritual. It means that it heeds nothing of the Holy Spirit's power, sees nothing of the governance of God over our lives, and makes its own decisions for its own means. So it goes, it's earthly, yes, it's unspiritual, and well, in fact, it's demonic. False wisdom is fueled by lies that we believe about the nature and character of God, about our own value, and about how life should be lived. David Platt notes about this passage. He says in Genesis 3, the serpent tempted Eve to trust in his wisdom instead of God's wisdom. And the adversary is doing the same thing in every one of our lives today. He didn't come at Eve with uh, the pitchfork and the horns and all that stuff. He came to her with earthly wisdom. He doesn't come to Jesus with horns and a pitchfork. He comes to Jesus with earthly wisdom, a way that seems right to man. And that's exactly how he's going to come at you. Well, I know that this is what the Bible says, but what it really means is, or I, I know that this is what the Bible says, but listen, there's a shorter, easier way to get to that same reality. And church, this is demonic. It's not just a bad idea. It is antithetical to God and to his word. And what this produces, what this develops, is disorder in every vile practice. Because you see, if you refuse to see God for who he is, to see your value as defined by him, to submit your lifestyle to him, then nothing is off limits. The wisdom that we have described here leads to anger, bitterness, resentment, division, divorce, and on the list could go. Douglas Moo, writing about this, says, When those who are being looked to for direction and wise counsel act on the basis of a personal agenda or in a spirit of one-upmanship towards one another, they do great damage to the church. One of the most important aspects of our growth in wisdom is perspective. As we've seen, earthly wisdom is focused on the here and now, means to an end. What can I do to make my life easier, more comfortable, more fulfilling? While eternal wisdom is, well, eternal. 
Eternal wisdom is more interested in 100,000 years from now. Now, we were, I was talking with somebody earlier who, uh, we were talking about differences in generations. I was Chris. We were talking about differences in generations, right? And there is a generation that has gone before my generation that is willing to have, uh, what's it called? Um, patience. They don't have to have it right now. I cannot tell you how many conversations I have with friends and people that I know who are in my generation who want to move out of mom and dad's house into a house just like mom and dad's and not put in 40 years of labor to earn that. If you look in our community, you look at Avon, this is a reality that is driving a, the vast majority of families in our community. I want what I want, when I want it, and I want it now. I don't care what that means for 35 years from now, but this is what I want, and I want it right now. And earthly wisdom is going to say, there's a way that seems right to man. I can make that happen for you. All you got to do is shuffle this, maneuver that, and offload all your debt for 35 years from now when you're broke. But eternal wisdom is interested in investing in things for the long term. Investing in the lives of people that you may never see the benefit of this side of heaven. Investing in discipling and preaching and teaching and, and sharing and loving and caring and, and, and being that father who was working 100 hours a week who now says, I'm not worried about the job. I've got these kids in my home for this long. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invest there. Notice with me, eternal wisdom is demonstrated through the meekness of wisdom. Another James turn of phrase that I love, the meekness of wisdom. He says, number one, that they will demonstrate good conduct. So true wisdom, as we have seen, True wisdom will result in uh, being rooted and grounded and found in Christ, which will therefore produce within us demonstrated good works. So if you find your identity in Jesus and you're pursuing Christ and the things of Christ, the natural outflow, the natural outworking of that is there will be good work. There will be good work, and it's not going to be something you have to put in your calendar to do. It just will happen. But notice also that these works are done quietly and with humility, right? It's not, hey, I did such and such. Let me bang on my chest. Let me post it to Facebook. Let me tell you about. It's done quietly and in humility. I remember uh, my granddad. I remember going to my granddad's funeral and hearing about the way that he just quietly and humbly served his neighbor that we didn't know anything about until at his funeral. She walks in and we're like, oh, how did you know, how did you know granddad? And, oh, I was his neighbor. And we're his family. No, had no idea that he had just quietly, humbly, patiently served this woman and her children. No fanfare, certainly no social media posts. Of course, that was prior to social media, but if he could have done that, that would have been really impressive. 
Those who do these good works do so quietly and in humility. Paul describes it this way in Colossians 3. Whatever you do. Do you know what that phrase, whatever you do, means? Whatever you do. Going to church, going to the grocery store, watching a football game. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Church, that's what it means to worship God with your life. That's not a core value that we just slap on a piece of paper and say, well, it spells view. How cool is that? No, this is what we're called to do. We're called to worship him with our life at the driving range, at the post office, at the movie theater. As we were talking about this week with our parents, right? Whether you sit down in your home, whether you're on your way someplace, when you're lying down or waking up, whatever you're doing, you do it in a manner that you serve the Lord. So eternal wisdom is demonstrated through the meekness of wisdom, but it it's, finds its origins in the divine. In James 1, verses 5 through 6, we read these words just a page or so over in your Bible or a scroll or so over in your Bible. If any of you lacks wisdom, I love that he says that, right? If any of you lack wisdom. Who's going to, uh, well, this is maybe exactly why he wrote the end of James 3, because there was somebody in the crowd who was like, I don't lack wisdom. I got it. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask who? God. Who, notice this, gives to who? All. Generously. And without criticizing. And it will be given to him. So if you desire wisdom, Here's the solution. Pursue the Lord. Ask him for wisdom. Because God's word says he'll give it to you. And he'll give it to you generously. He doesn't just give it to you like begrudgingly. You you all have seen that, right? When somebody gives you something begrudgingly. How many of you have a sibling? How many of you have children, grandchildren? Ever been around a kid in your life, right? then you, you've seen what giving begrudgingly looks like. God doesn't give like a three-year-old giving away their favorite toy. God gives like a grandparent, right? We have to, my, my mom's here this morning. We have to remind Grammy, Grammy, you cannot give her everything she asks for, all right? We need to teach her to want that whole patience thing. Can't give her everything. God gives wisdom generously because he loves you. Previously, we noted that there are a number of scholars who have postulated, who have thrown out the idea that James is, in fact, a commentary on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and have suggested that if you look at Matthew chapter 5, you see a lot of, of commentary by James on this sermon. Notice with me the similarities of the list of attributes found here in James 3 as compared to their counterparts in the words of our Lord in Matthew chapter 5, okay? So he's going to lay out wisdom from above is, verse 17, first of all, wisdom from above is pure. 
Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, the pure in heart are blessed, for they will see God. He says that wisdom from above is peaceable. Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 9, the peacemakers are blessed, for they will be called sons of God. Wisdom above is gentle. The gentle are blessed, for they will inherit the earth. Open to reason. The poor in spirit are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Full of mercy. The merciful are blessed, for they will be shown mercy. Good fruit. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed, for they will be filled. Impartial. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and send rain on the just and the unjust. Which is going back to Job. Sincere. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And we could go on, right? I mean, there's more of these things, right? And then another fascinating study is to take uh, what we just looked at, these character traits in verse 17 go to Matthew 5 and then also look at the fruits of the Spirit. You know what you find? The Bible is saying the same thing. It's consistent. He's saying if you're a follower of me, you'll see these things. He's reiterating it over and over and over again. Why is he doing that? Because it's an indicator if you're a follower of him or not. So would you describe yourself as being a person who is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy, has a life that demonstrates good fruits, and on the list goes? And if you find yourself thinking, I know that I have a relationship with him, but I'm struggling to see these fruits in my life, ask someone who knows you well, do you see these things in my life? And if they say no, then one of two things needs to happen, and both of them are joyous because God has brought them to you, right? Either repentance needs to take place. Lord, I am in sin. I'm not seeing these things in my life, and frankly, if I'm being honest, it's because I'm not spending time in your word or with your people or whatever the case may be. So option number one, repent. Option number two is receive salvation. It's entirely possible that you're a church goer and not a follower of Jesus. How many of you all know that that's entirely possible? Our churches are filled across our country with people who are church goers but not followers. And here's the, here's the absolute ridiculous mess that is created, right? And it all goes back to what we just said a few moments ago, right? You will, you will refuse to submit the conviction of the Holy Spirit on your life because you're afraid of what people in this room might think. Can I just tell you how crazy that is? Just in a, as a, in a James sort of way, I love you enough to tell you, that is nuts. I don't care if you're the oldest person in the room, if you come forward this morning and say, you know what? I know that I need to receive Christ. I've been a churchgoer my whole life. 
I can tell you all about the Bible, but I've never followed Jesus. You know what that's going to be met with? Joy. Celebration. We might go crazy and clap hands. Say an amen or two. And yet, there's the temptation. If, if that describes you, there's that temptation even now where, but they might think that I'm weird or they might think that I've been lying or they might, who cares what we think? You will one day stand before God Almighty and nobody in this room is going to be standing there with you. Rant completed. Eternal wisdom also produces, develops peace and righteousness. Those who are wise are peaceful. And the result of that peacefulness is that they sow peace where they go. This is not a simply a happy-go-lucky, pretend like everything is okay and let's just all get along. No, this, this is a peace that is grounded in the truth of God's word and communicated, as we have seen, with humility. It's not an unwillingness to confront, an unwillingness to say difficult things, but it's a way, it's a commitment of saying those things with the desired outcome of peace. Saying them with humility. It doesn't mean that we're all in agreement on every decision and every detail of every direction that the church goes in, but it does mean that when we walk together in humility, seeking and pursuing after God, we are more apt to set aside our own selfish ambitions, pastoral staff included, and desires for the sake of unity. So if, if we will agree that we desire to see God do a great and mighty thing in and through this people, then what it means is that we are in agreement that we desire to pursue Jesus and what that means for our lives. And that means that we're going to walk in humility with one another, lovingly encouraging each other, as we said last week, and repenting to one another, as we said last week, confronting one another, as we have talked about in the book of James. And all of this quietly in humility with a willingness to set aside our own selfish, um, and whether you see it as selfish or not, right? Setting aside our own ambitions to say, you know what? I really want to see this happen. But for right now, if that's not what needs to take place, that's okay. And that, that kind of peace, that kind of peace produces righteousness. In Hosea 10, we find these words, Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord. Church, it is time to seek the Lord. To break up hard ground. And it's hard for a reason. And that requires that for everybody in this room, that we walk in humility with one another. That we patiently love and endure. That we care for one another. We encourage one another. We repent. The author of Hebrews writes in chapter 12, for the moment, all discipline. You know what that Greek word for all means? All discipline seems painful 
rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So when you feel the conviction of the Lord or when a brother comes to you and he loves and cares about you enough to confront you about something, you feel the discipline of the Lord. No, it does not feel pleasant in the moment. But listen again, it will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Matt Chandler notes, he says, True wisdom is found only in the person and work of Jesus. To line yourself up with how God has commanded us to live, but not submit your life to Jesus Christ, does not get you life and the Lord's blessing. Jesus is the Lord's blessing. Jesus is wisdom. And a life submitted to Him is life and a Lord's blessing. James tells us in this chapter, and in chapter 1, that if we lack wisdom, and we desire wisdom, we need only to ask in faith. Let's do that together. Father, we love you. Thank you for the gift of your word and the reminder this morning of the differences between earthly and eternal wisdom. And God, just our tendency to want to shortcut the process, to do what seems right without having pursued you, without having studied the truth. Father, I pray... God, I pray that we would sow seeds of peace that yield righteousness. That the encouragement that was shared last week, the the seeking of forgiveness, the repentance that was done last week, that God, that's not just a one week, hey, we heard a sermon about that, so let's do that this week sort of a thing. But God, that our conversations would be peppered with encouragement that we would earnestly seek in the midst of conversation evidences of your grace. That we would love one another enough, God, that we would be willing to confront one another humbly, but with the truth when we see areas of sinfulness. God, that we would confess to one another where we need help. Father, I I pray for anyone in this room, God, who has not experienced the peace that comes through salvation in Christ Jesus. God, your word says we are born into sin. And God, that because of our sin, we are in hostility. We are um, at war with you. But God, in in an act of mercy and grace, God, you did not leave things that way, but you sent your son. God, you sent your son to come to this earth to take the punishment that was due to us, dying upon a cross, buried in a tomb. And God, in a demonstration of your power and authority over sin and death, God, raised and uh, got a living Savior. And Father, this gift is offered to us this morning. And Father, if there's anyone here who has never chosen by your grace to follow you, I pray, God, that you would strengthen them, God, to to come forward or even just to pray in their seat, but to tell somebody. And God, this message is gloriously good, and may we not 
keep it to ourselves. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, we're going to respond as we have an opportunity to do each week. At the end of that time of response, we'll observe the Lord's Supper together. So I want to invite you to respond to God's word. You can stand and sing. You can stay seated and pray. But I would encourage you to respond, to prepare your heart for what God has in store. Let's do that together.